Our scripture this morning is Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is, as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this, I shall know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. 
as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Thanks, Johanna. Good morning. This is, she's, Johanna just read Genesis 42. Uh, Genesis 41 ended by letting us know that just as God had forewarned through Pharaoh's dream, a famine had spread over all the land. And therefore, at the proper time, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. Moreover, all of the earth came to Joseph to buy grain because the, the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph's family, his father and ten brothers who were still in Canaan, there were no exception. His father and eleven brothers. They too, it seemed, faced the brunt of the famine and were running low on food. Not yet in dire straits, it seems, but with them in sight. Jacob and his sons were not sure what to do. Think about that for a second. The whole earth is in famine. People can see that food is, is running out. Not sure what to do. We've, we've all been there, not in a worldwide famine necessarily, but we've all been there in some level. Haven't we? Uh, we're able to see that the trajectory of our lives, or at least some part of our lives, is is headed towards something really undesirable. You've all been in that place, I imagine. To do nothing is to all but guarantee that that particular outcome will come to pass. But you don't have necessarily a better alternative. Sitting still is foolish, but everything else seems foolish as well. Probably deeper still is this pull of the status quo. In situations like this, we're often irrationally more afraid of losing our normal life than we are of whatever suffering the current trajectory is taking us to. That, I believe, is at the heart of Jacob's question to his sons. Why do you look at one another? The idea is they're all just sitting there, looking at each other, staring, not knowing what to do, knowing that something needs to be done, but not knowing what that would be. No one wanted to admit how serious their situation was, and no one wanted to take the lead in addressing it. As patriarch, however, Jacob felt responsible to not simply sit around and wait for his family to starve to death. He knew they had to do something, and that's where this passage picks up this morning. The chapter as a whole focuses once again on the greatness of God. You can't read this text rightly and not grow in your understanding of how great God is. It focuses on the, f- the fulfillment of the first of Joseph's chapter 37 dreams, and the bulk of the passage focuses on the testing of Joseph's brothers. There's some trickiness to Joseph's actions. If you haven't thought a lot about him or gotten below the surface at all, it seems kind of weird, some of the things he does and, and even the things he doesn't do. 
But the heart of this passage is once again the miraculous work of God to bring about his plan of redemption for his faithful people. Above all then, above all, at the end of the day, we're meant to read this passage and be amazed by the mighty saving hand of God and glad for the new faithfulness he works out in Joseph's brothers, his covenant people. So let's pray. Let's pray that the end result of this text and this sermon would be that we would be more amazed and through that more faithful. God, there's a lot here. Some is familiar and some is not. Some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't on the surface to us. But above all, to read this rightly, we we acknowledge before you now, to read this rightly is to see you with greater greatness. You are infinitely glorious, glorious beyond measure. You, You are greater than we could ever imagine. And yet with each brick that your text gives us, we're able to see and build a greater understanding of who you are as you've revealed yourself to us. May that be the case. As we prayed this morning in the prayer room, God, may the familiarity, familiar, familiarity of your revealing yourself continually greater, more and more and more, not, not fall on us as, hey, we've, we've heard this before but like a good prosecutor laying out carefully and one after another the the evidence against the guilty, one after another. Let, let, Let us see this as building a case that is undeniable. Your glory is beyond measure. And we know that because you reveal it to us in your word and you reveal it to us by your spirit and among your people. May that be the case this morning. And as we see that, once again, may we trust more fully in your promises and therefore live more obediently to your commands as we experience more fully your love for us, your people, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. So with the famine crushing all of the earth, Jacob somehow learned, remember there's no internet, you couldn't just Google this, somehow he learned that there was grain to be had in Egypt. Rather than continue to sit around and wait to starve then, he sent his sons, all except his youngest, that is, Benjamin, to buy food. The text tells us that Jacob kept Benjamin behind. What it implies and in its language is because he was the other son of his favorite wife, but also that he feared that harm might happen to him. Presumably, Jacob's fear came from what he expected but could not prove that his other sons were responsible for Joseph's death. Such is the nature of a corrupt character. Even when it is accompanied by slipperiness that prevents persecution, it produces an unmistakable stench that warns everyone around. Nevertheless, dutifully, the rest of Jacob's sons obeyed and headed to Egypt Egypt to purchase food. Clearly, of course, with no idea of what was about to happen to them. Then comes a series of tests. Still in charge of the land and overseeing the famine management, uh, for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, Joseph was doing all of this himself, still in charge of the famine management personally. He himself was the one selling 
grain back to the Egyptians and anyone else who came to, came to Egypt to get it. For that reason, when the brothers arrived in Egypt, without realizing it, they stood before Joseph himself. Recognizing his authority, they bowed themselves before him, the governor or lord of the land, with their faces to the ground, Chapter or verse 6 says. In this moment, Joseph knew what his brothers hadn't yet realized, who he was, of course, but also that the first of his dreams was just then fulfilled. The sheaves, their sheaves, were bowing down to Joseph's sheaves. We read, read that uh, dream in 37.7. Verse 9 in our chapter makes that explicit. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. The key for us is simply that God's purposes, grace, always come to pass. We're in chapter 42 of 50 in Genesis, and we have seen over and over and over again that God's purposes always come to pass. His goodness, settle on this grace, his goodness, wisdom, and power are without limit. And so his word is always perfect, and he always keeps it. When God communicates his will, whether through direct revelation or visions or dreams or prophets or writings or his very own son, it will never fail. Hear this. This is as true for you and I as it was for them then. At least 20 years had elapsed since God had given Joseph his dream. That must have felt like forever to Joseph, especially in light of all that he had been through. But, and here's the key. It was as certain to come to pass when God first gave the dream as it was when it, in its fulfillment right here. Let me say that again because that is the nature of every one of God's promises. To find a promise of God in the word of God is gold. It's pure gold, much refined gold, the Bible tells us. And this is exactly why. Why? Because of this. At least 20 years had elapsed since God had given Joseph his dream, but it was as certain to come to pass when God gave the dream and the promises through it as it was here in its fulfillment. For God alone is that the case. Do you get that? Do you get the significance of that grace? To find a promise of God is to find something as that is as certain when it is made as when it is fulfilled. Grace, we can all, we can trust God in all He says. All of His promises will come to pass in His perfect timing. Let me make a quick note before we move on to the main body of the passage and the, the tests that Joseph put his brothers through. Verse 8 says that Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. There's a lot in this, a lot more important stuff than this. But but I'll show you why this matters in just a bit textually. But this is the main question I get on this passage. How could they not recognize their own brother? It's not like he was a newborn when they when they sold him into slavery. How could they not how could they not recognize him? Well, perhaps part of the answer is that God kept them. We don't know that for sure, but that's a common theme in the Bible, actually, is God keeping people from seeing things that are, even keeping people from seeing people as they are. Again, it doesn't tell us that this is what the the reason for this, but this is consistent with some of the ways that God has worked in the Bible. Or, Or perhaps there's a more natural explanation. Again, it had been at least 20 years 
since Joseph's brothers had seen him last. All of us changed quite a bit from 17 to 40. And on top of that, he had been reared as an Egyptian and clearly taken on a more Egyptian appearance. And the context was all wrong. You know what that's like to, to, if you don't know somebody at church really well, you know, maybe you're a left sider and you're a right sider. And you bump into each other at Walmart, but you can't quite, I know I know you, I can't quite tell. I had one of those just this week even. It was it was one of those, I'm an idiot and I know it, and this is just further proof. But I, I was I was talking to a doctor and she, she, she said, saw my last name, and she said, do you know a Dan Van Acker? And I immediately picture some old guy named Dan and, and I... <laughs> And I thought, no, I, I, I said, no, I, I don't. <laughs> As it turns out, I do know a Dan Van Acker. <clears throat> we don't call him that. I've never called him that in my life. But she said, that's, you know, your, your last name is unusual. My, my son wrestles with a Dan Van Acker in Forest Lake. And I, what a, what a coincidence. I, <laughs> anyway, I tried to, tried to crawl out of that one. But the point is the context was wrong. Here's an older woman, a, a doctor, talking to me about Dan. I don't know a Dan. The context was wrong. If if she had been at the wrestling meet with me, I, I probably would have made the connection. Anyway, the point is uh, we don't know. We don't know for sure why the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. But we do know that they didn't, and we do know that that becomes really significant as we move through these tests. They were... The chosen family of God. Why would Joseph put his brother through some tests? They were the chosen family of God, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, but they had been anything but faithful to God to this point. To see their lives was to see the mark of unfaithful people, not faithful people, to see darkness, not light. God's people needed to be a faithful people. They needed to be a light to the world. But they needed to be walking in the light. They needed to know that they were walking in the light. And the question is, were they? They hadn't been, but were they? Had they changed? Was there any remorse for their misguided hatred and enslavement of their brother? Again, Joseph's six tests. There's there's six tests in this passage. They were meant to let everyone involved find the answers to these questions, including the brothers. So here they are. They come pretty rapid fire on purpose. It's, It's as if... Joseph is a skilled interrogator, and he wants to catch him off guard so that they can't just fake their way through this. And so here they are. The first one, I, I gave them each names. The first one is called the background test, verse 7. The first test Joseph gave his brothers was a, a type of background check. He, he was going to take information that he already knew, of course, and see if they would lie. He treated them, it says, like strangers and spoke roughly to them, asking them, where did you come from? Again, it's simple enough. He knew the answer. There's no reason to lie about this other than a corrupt character. And so he asked them. He knew what would they say. They told the truth. We are from the land of Canaan. So far, so good. It's like the test where, you know, what's your name? Usually you get that right, and then you move on, and it just gets you going. So the background test. The next one was what I call the pressure test, verses 9 through 14. It came in the form of a false accusation. He said to them, and again, he knew the truth, but he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Joseph's brothers told the truth regarding their homelands, but 
What would they do when the pressure was turned up and they were falsely accused of being foreign spies? As we can expect, they vehemently denied the accusation and reiterated that, no, 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 we're, we're just here to purchase food. We, we're not spies. In the process of doing so, again, you got to imagine here by the inspiration of God, Joseph is a clever interrogator and, and with this accusation got them to admit a little bit more stuff that he could test or that he would know the answer to. They, they revealed that they were brothers. A little bit more. They're tipping their hand a little bit further. Well, unrelenting, Joseph ratcheted up the pressure a bit more. He insisted, no, no, you are spies. In response, they continued to deny the claim, and and therein, presumably by Joseph's design, revealed even more background information. They said they had said they were brothers from Canaan. This time they told them that they were there were they were ten of twelve, with the youngest back home and one. No more, verse 13. In all of this, they passed another test, but in so doing, brought another one upon themselves. The third test I call the retrieval test, verses 15 and 16. It began with the third accusation of being spies. This time, however, he gave them an opportunity to prove their innocence. He gave them a specific way to show that they were telling the truth. They could demonstrate beyond doubt that they were not spies, as Joseph had accused them of being, if they were able to produce their younger brother. Nine brothers would remain in Egypt, Joseph said, while one would travel back to get their youngest. This was the first test that was truly verifiable with new information, and Joseph wanted to see what they would do. Well, beyond that, Grace, remember, Genesis is part of a bigger picture, a bigger story of what God is doing. And his plan was to reunite the chosen family as a means of continuing to fulfill the covenant promises that he had made to them. Jacob and his clan had to be brought back together. The key, however, and get this, what happens here on the surface is that they're going to be brought back together physically. But the key is that they might come together not only in physical proximity, but also, far more importantly, in faith. As strange as Joseph's Joseph's actions might seem on the surface, all of these tests were designed by God to make them a faithful people and to bring them together. And that leads to the fourth test, the prison test. Verse 17, before we find out the outcome of the third, in fact, we're not going to find out the outcome of the third in this chapter, a fourth test was introduced. Joseph the imprisoned, the hand of his brothers, became the imprisoner. In a remarkable twist and clear fulfillment of this dream revelation, Joseph took his brothers into custody and put them in prison. Perhaps they would reveal, again, this is an extension of the pressure test in some ways, but perhaps they would reveal some aspect of faithfulness. They hadn't yet, but perhaps they would while they were imprisoned. Being incarcerated by a powerful stranger in a foreign land for crimes they didn't commit would certainly shake loose any remaining character acting, right? I mean, you can maybe pull it off to this point, but man, that's that's a lot of weight put on them. Were, were they still the same people that had wrongly hated their brother and sold them into slavery? With the pressure turned way up, how would they respond? And that leads to the modified retrieval test. These are really clever names, I know, but... Verses 18 to 20. 
After three days in prison, Joseph released his brothers and reintroduced the retrieval test, slightly modified. The brothers still needed to produce Benjamin as proof of their story, but instead of sending only one brother with the rest remaining in custody, they would leave only one brother. The rest would carry grain back home to their families and return with Benjamin. Embedded in this last test, and I want you to see this. I, I couldn't, it's not a main thrust of the passage, and yet it is so crucial. I need, I need to say this. At the same time, it is so crucial to the whole of the Bible that the limited space I'm giving it minimizes how important this is in Scripture. So just put a bookmark here in your brain for this idea, and then we'll come back to it in, in future chapters. But in verse 18, Joseph declared that he was providing his brothers with a means of vindication, showing that they were innocent. Because, do you see it already? Because he feared God. The phrases fear God and fear the Lord and the fear of the Lord occur nearly a hundred times in the Bible. And it occurs even more time, more, more times through additional phrases, similar phrases. As Abraham was about to take his son's life, Jacob's father, Joseph's grandfather, As he was about to take his son's life on the altar at the command of God, the Lord spoke up and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only son from me. In this passage is a really good thing, even a necessary thing, that Abraham feared God. A little later in this story in Deuteronomy 6, we read, Now this is the commandment. This is the second giving of the law. This is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them. Here are the commands. Why am I giving you the commands? That you would obey them in the land that you are going, that you are going over to possess it. Why? So gave commands. Why? So that you would obey them in the land that you're about to go to, well, why that? It tells us that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. Again, the purpose of God's commands was to teach his people to fear him. Good thing, necessary thing. Similarly, Proverbs 1.7, familiar passage, I hope, says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Conversely, on the other side of the Bible's teaching is this continual refrain that we see over and over as Abraham's children, his offspring, become a nation. You see this over and over. A continual refrain in the Bible is that both God's people and his enemies commit a dangerous and often deadly error when they fail to fear God. But that's just Old Testament stuff, right? We hear that all the time. The Old Testament God is the God of fear and wrath and anger. But the, the New Testament God, he's different, right? It's, it's different for Christians. The cross took care of all of that, didn't it? We, we no, no, no longer need to fear God, do we? Grace, to know God is to fear God. If you do not tremble at the thought of the Almighty, you are not actually thinking of the Almighty. God's nature is such that the Bible describes him as a consuming fire and a dreaded warrior. 
In simplest terms, every person on earth ought to and will one day, as John prayed earlier, fear the Lord, albeit in different ways. If you are not trusting in Jesus, hear this. There's a way you are, you need to, ought to, and one day will fear the Lord. For the unrepentant sinner, the fear of the Lord consists mainly of a well-placed, a well-grounded terror that you stand condemned before God in your sin, and therefore all of his infinite might is aimed at your everlasting destruction. (laughs) But for the one hoping in Jesus, the blood of Jesus has reconciled you to God, and there is therefore no longer fear of condemnation. In this way, the fear of the Lord leads to repentance, and the gospel is such that repentance leads to freedom of fear. That kind of fear. Christians, then, were meant to live in a different kind of fear. A reverential awe of God that restrains your sinful desires and drives you to obedience and the love of God. With that, because Joseph knew these things about God, the fear of God was upon him. And the text tells us that his right fear of the Lord compelled him to act justly towards his brothers. Just think of what they had put him through. (laughs) 20 years since they sold him wrongly into slavery, imprisoned and lied about, falsely accused, tempted. Even if some part of him wanted to seek vengeance, I mean, how many of you are thinking, man, I'd I'd get him. (laughs) I'm the Lord of the land. They are in my grasp. I'd I'd at least give them something. How many of you think that even right now you have a sibling that's mistreating you and you're tempted to give it back to them? But even if some part of Joseph wanted to seek vengeance on his brothers, the fear of the Lord restrained it, this text tells us. Joseph's brothers would get a fair test because Joseph knew that God does not tolerate unfairness from his people. Vengeance belongs to him. And then, constrained by the fear of the Lord, Joseph was testing his brothers to see if they had changed. As to the response to these tests, what have we seen so far? Well, at the very least, to this point, Joseph's brothers seem more humble. They seem more deferential than they did the the last time we saw them. But Grace, hear this. Hear this. Being humble and deferential to the most powerful man around the one who holds your very life and the life of your family in his hands doesn't necessarily signal a true change of heart. It's one thing to be low around someone who is higher than you, as Joseph was at that moment. But it's another thing altogether to be low around someone who is weak and vulnerable, as Joseph was the last time they saw him. Similarly, Grace, it's one thing to admit you are wrong, but it's another thing altogether to be truly repentant. The brothers had yet to fail a test, but had they truly passed these tests, or were they just putting on a good show? Before we move to the answer that the text gives us about the true nature of the brothers' heart condition in the final section of the sermon, let let me ask you to quickly consider something. Quickly consider this in your own lives. Are you marked when, when you, when you sin? Are you marked by genuine, God-given, gospel-centered repentance? Or are you just good at putting on a show when it's convenient? Let me give you four questions. I want you to ask yourself these this week. Four questions to diagnose the true nature 
of your sin response. Here are the four questions. Number one, are you allowing God's word to define sin and its consequences for you? You hear a lot of people talk in the world today. They don't necessarily use the word sin, but all over we're being accused of sins. Sins made up by them. Do you do that too? Do I do that too? I know the answer is yes at times. Are you allowing God's word to define sin for you? If you or someone else has created your understanding of sin or its consequences, you cannot have true repentance. The Bible tells us what is sin and what isn't sin. The Bible tells us what ought to result from sin or what will result from sin. It gives sin names. Where the Bible doesn't name it, it isn't sin. Number one, ask yourself this. As you go through your week and as you encounter sin in yourself or in others, are you allowing God's word to define sin for you? Number two, do you understand your sin mainly in terms of rebellion against God? Do you think mainly that above all, first and foremost, whatever sin you commit is against God? If you're more concerned about the earthly implications, if your first thought is to make an excuse or give an explanation, you lack true repentance. Do you understand that your sin is mainly a sin and offense against God? Number three, do you feel genuine grief? Now, Now, I didn't say just grief, but genuine grief. I mean, do you feel any grief, I suppose? And if so, is it genuine? There is a kind of worldly grief, the Bible says, the Apostle Paul teaches us, that feels bad about sin. You sin, you feel bad on some level, but with a head down, woe is me attitude. That's not true repentance. But there is also a kind of grief, the Bible tells us, that feels sad about our sin with a head up, thanks for the cross attitude. True repentance involves that kind of grief. Here's the last question. Finally, do these things lead, the the first three combined? Are you letting the word of God define sin for you? Do you understand your sin mainly in terms of its rebellion against God? Do you feel genuine grief? And finally, do these things add up to a renewed fight against sin in light of the cross, the power of the Spirit, and for the glory of God? Is the end result of a, a genuine and renewed distaste for and battle against sin? or a wallowing, or an indifference. The genuine and renewed distaste and battle against sin is true repentance. A wallowing in it or an indifference to it is putting on a show. These are the things we ought to look for in ourselves and in Joseph's brothers as the story continues. And that leads to the final question. How would the brothers respond? What was the true nature of their hearts at this point? A straightforward answer comes right away. We find it the whole thing in 21 to 38, but a straightforward answer to the question of the true nature of the response comes right on the heels of Joseph's last recorded words in this passage. He said to them, bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified. If you do, you shall not die. In response, the the text in verse 20 simply says this, and they did so. There's more to the response But this points straight to it. The real key comes just a few verses later. After Joseph spoke, the brothers began to discuss these things among themselves. They didn't know Joseph could understand them, but he could. The reason, for reasons we're not told, all of these tasks, it doesn't doesn't necessarily seem like it would have. There's nothing in there where I, 
I, I would go away thinking, wow, that's really convicting. But for reasons we're not told, God cut to their heart through these tests. All of this triggered a genuine confession, an expression of remorse within the brothers. For the first time in almost 20 years, or 20 years, collectively, they acknowledged the treachery of their earlier actions. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we would not listen. And from that they concluded, this is why this distress has come upon us. Their life got turned around. The famine is in the land. They came before the Lord of the land, and all kinds of stuff broke loose. They they understood that this was God working in them and on them. That is why this distress has come upon us. Grace, don't miss the, the gift that this is. doesn't sound like a gift, does it? This sounds like the opposite of a gift. Famine over all the earth. We don't have food for much longer. We have to go to this foreign pagan land to get it. As soon as we get there, this guy starts messing with us. We've been in prison for three days. He falsely accuses us. Now we got to go back and tell our dad about all this, and he's not going to be happy. One of our brothers has to stay in prison. God used all of that to convict them of their sin. This is a gift. Don't miss this. How is it a gift? The brothers had been guilty of sin for decades. Decades. But only here did God grant them the ability to feel and lament their guilt. And it is only when we can feel and lament our guilt that we can turn to God who will save us and rescue us in Jesus Christ. We have sin all around us and all over us and all in us and through us apart from Christ before we come to faith in Jesus. We just don't know it or we call it another name or we don't realize how deadly it is. But here God revealed this to them. It was a gift of God. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for your neighbors. Pray that they would see the Lord and fear the Lord and in that recognize their holiness in light of the Lord. This was a gift God gave the brothers for the first time, it seems, in their whole lives. Recognizing and grieving over our sin is a gift from God. Now, Reuben dropped the big I told you so. Even going so far, though, as to call their actions sin in verse 22 and their current circumstances, a reckoning for his blood. Again, importantly, though, in verse 23, we're told Joseph overheard all of this and understood all of this. I say it's important because, once again, all of this was meant to reveal. We, we, we know that they didn't think they were putting on a show for Joseph. They didn't even know he could understand them. It was meant to reveal for everyone involved, Joseph, his brothers, their father, and even God, not not giving information to God, but for God to show this to them, whether or not they had truly forsaken the kind of unrepentant faithlessness that would disqualify them from being covenant people. More and more, the text gives us a picture of real transformation. As we'll see, these brothers aren't perfect. That's not the point but they were becoming faithful. Hearing all of this, Joseph turned away from them and wept. Presumably, these were tears of both bitterness and sweetness. But what a revelation and a lesson this is for us. What a revelation and a lesson. What's the revelation? It's a revelation 
that whatever Joseph projected, this harshness, this interrogating, whatever he projected on the surface was a disguise for his true feelings. Through all of this, Joseph felt pain to be sure, but the pain was wrapped in a warm affection for his brothers in spite of all of their treachery against him. If you want, if you want a takeaway, there's several in here, but here's one. Here's the lesson. The lesson then is that the unmerited favor of God on our lives is entirely sufficient to give us unmerited favor for the lives of another. You are free and I am free in Christ to love others even though they don't deserve it because God loves us even though we don't deserve it. Amen? That's awesome. That is the power of the cross. We sing about the wonderful cross. You think, well... I mean, that's a weird thing to say. Oh, the wonderful electric chair. Oh, the, the wonderful execution squad. But you understand what that means, right? It's meant to sound weird because it is through that that we are freed to love in ways that we have been loved. Eager to restore fellowship at this point, Joseph sees their heart's transformation. He bound Simeon and then sent the rest on their way. Before he did, there was one more test. One more test that he was going to give him. One more that he was going to administer, and one more with the results still pending. The final test and final character test involved selling grain to his brothers and then hiding their money back in their bags. How would they respond when they faced this? To find it was to know that the ruler of the land could make an accusation against them. What would they do? We don't find out till later. And of course, the test with results still pending was whether or not they would bring Benjamin back, the retrieval test. On their way home, one of the brothers, sure enough, discovered the money in their sacks, and they all trembled. They feared once again that God was punishing them for their earlier treachery. They wondered aloud among themselves, what is this that God has done to us? Back at home, they retold all this to their father, Jacob, before realizing that the money had been returned to not just one sack, but to all of them. Upon discovering this, they were even more afraid. Seeing and hearing all of this made their father Jacob recoil himself. He lamented again the loss of his son. He felt certain for the loss of his other son, Simeon, and anticipated the loss of a third son, Benjamin, should they carry out Joseph's plan. He said this, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All of this has come against me. And yet, as further proof of the genuineness of the brothers' newfound faith, Reuben sought to act faithfully and justly. He offered up even his own two sons as collateral until he returned safely with both Simeon and Benjamin. This wasn't enough at this point to assuage his father, to ease his mind. And so understandably, Jacob cried out, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. That's how the chapter ends. Well, understandable grace. It's understandable why Jacob would feel this way. His refusal effectively condemned all of them to death. You see that? Simeon, because he was still in captivity, And the rest, eventually, because they would no longer have a place to purchase grain. They would starve to death. We end, then, with two ungraded tests. What would the brothers do with the money in their sacks? And would they be able to make good on their promise to return with Benjamin?
in light of their father's objections. Like a great cliffhanger, you, you've got to wait a couple of weeks to find out. So let me conclude. Let me restate the heart of the passage, and then leave you with a final challenge. Here's the heart of the passage. The whole of the chapter focuses on God's greatness to accomplish his purposes for his people. The fulfillment of Joseph's first dream and the testing of Joseph's brothers as God made a faithful people. Through all this, we see once again the miraculous work of God to bring about his plan of redemption by making what wasn't into what was. What was unable to do, those who were unable to do what God required on their own, God did for them. And above all then, we're meant to read this passage and be amazed again, and even more so, by the mighty saving hand of God, and glad for the new God-given faithfulness of Joseph's brothers, fresh with the sense that if God could save these crooks, these traffickers, he can save anyone. And so here's your challenge. I invite you to consider the simple fact that your life and mine Our lives, too, are filled with tests intended to reveal both the presence of genuine faith and the level of maturity of it. We are not saved, Grace, by passing those tests. We are saved by trusting in the one who did, though. What's more, the same grace, the same grace of God that saves us based on the merit of another also continually and increasingly fills us with the character of the meritorious one. In that way, I challenge you then. Consider the tests of your life. Consider the times that you're tempted to walk in sin. Consider what happens when your appetites are contrary to God's nature. Consider the trials and difficulties that you endure. Consider the successes that God gives you. These are all tests. Consider the difficult mornings and the late nights. Consider the sicknesses and the ones you love and the loss of a job. Consider the loneliness that you feel at times and the fear. Consider all of these things, all of these tests. And as you consider them, where you find an increasing appetite to honor God in them, even if it seems way too small and way too slow, you found genuine proof of God's saving and sanctifying work in you. And so this week, then, I challenge you, remember the great wickedness of Joseph, Joseph's brothers. Remember the tests that Joseph put them through, the ones that God used to bring about repentance in them. And then remember the greater grace of God that extended to them and to you through Jesus Christ.